Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. My name is Kristen Harcourt and I'm your host. For those of you who are new to the show, I created this podcast because I am passionate and on a mission to humanize work and transform leaders globally. And for me, that mission is around helping leaders to do the self-leadership journey, to understand how they're showing up. And then when we talk about humanizing work, that's about creating more inclusive workplaces. And on this show, you'll hear from amazing experts around the globe that are giving you incredible insight around this. And I can't wait to introduce you to today's guest. I immediately loved Elena as soon as I met her. Her energy is just contagious. And so today's guest is Elena Joy Thurston. Elena is a conversion therapy survivor and founder of Pride and Joy Foundation. She helps organizations and families increase LGBTQ inclusion. And her, the mission of her nonprofit is to reduce the rate of suicide and homelessness in the LGBT community. Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Really excited to be here with you, Kristen. So Elena, I immediately, when I heard about the work that you're doing, I'm incredibly passionate about it. And, and even hearing your story and, and what you're doing, it's just even more fascinating because there would have been a time where you would not be able to do this work because you were being told this is not who you are. And I think that's a beautiful place for us to start our conversation today. Elena, talk to us a little bit more about your journey, what it would look like to be a conversion therapy survivor and get to where you are now and doing the work that you're so passionately doing in the world. All right, let's see. Um, I was married very young. I was part of a pretty strict religious community and it was very much a priority to get married very young and start a family. So I got married at 20. And by the time I was 32, I had four children and my youngest one went off to school and all my friends gathered around and said, what are you going to do now? <laughs> right. I finally had like six hours a day to think for myself and it was mind boggling. And it was also disconcerting. Um, I really wasn't comfortable with myself and the thoughts that were in my head and all of a sudden it became very clear I wasn't settled within myself and that itself is a very unsettling thought, right? In addition to the fact that I knew, I knew how blessed I was. I had a good husband. I had four healthy, beautiful kids. I lived in this gorgeous neighborhood. Like I drove the great minivan, like the whole thing, right? So to think that I wasn't over the top happy with this life was a really shameful thought to me. To not be incredibly grateful for everything I had was just so embarrassing isn't enough. It was very shameful. And so I covered that, that idea with a blanket of shame, stuffed it away in my head and distracted myself with everything I could find. And one of those things became, because of course, when you're in your thirties and your youngest goes back to school, I did what every other woman in the neighborhood did. And I joined a gym <laughs> to get my body back. Right. <laughs> so, and it turned out, I loved it. I loved seeing the gains, right? My strength going up and my body weight going down. And, and I loved that I could exercise this incredible control over my body and get results. I could see change. And I, I felt like at the time that that was progress. And I've always been someone who's really intrinsically attracted to progress. So 
I was weightlifting six days a week and I still had too much time on my hands. And so I started long distance running. It's really hard to think and to be aware of your thoughts when you're gasping for air. (laughs) So I started running miles and miles a day and I still was so unsettled. And so of course looked for another distraction and I found it in the crazy sport of fly fishing. (laughs) But what I realized was so looking back, what was so why that was such a game changer for me was that when you're doing something like fly fishing, you have to be so present because you can't be distracted. You can't be thinking, did I read my scriptures this morning? Did I pray with my kids before they left for school? Like you can't be thinking about all that stuff. You have to be so present. And that's when I realized okay, I actually can be here in this body with these thoughts and I'm safe. It's okay. And I hadn't experienced that in my whole adult life. It was constantly, especially because of my community and my faith community, the body was something to subdue. The body was something to not let it take over, right? Like you have to make sure that you're not giving into any carnal temptations. Like the list goes on and on, right? So that separation of body and soul was like a real thing. And as I came back into my body and created that embodiment, I had the massive realization that I was not attracted to men and I was very attracted to women. (laughs) That was really intense to realize when you're 37 years old after having been married for 17 years and having four children. (laughs) So that caused a lot of drama, you might say, in my life. And I realized once I was, quote unquote, struggling with same-sex attraction, what was on the line was huge. Um, In the religion, we believed that you can't return to God, you can't get to heaven if you're not married to the opposite sex. So it wasn't just my marriage was on the line. And it wasn't just that my entire social system was on the line. It was also my salvation, my exaltation, my afterlife, my eternity was on the line. And so I never at that point thought, oh, well, maybe you're just a lesbian, Elena. (laughs) Like that never happened. It was, oh no, I'm being tempted to sin and I need to get back on the straight and narrow path. And so I found a quote-unquote therapist who said that he could make me straight again. And if I worked hard, it would only take a month or two. And working hard meant going four days a week, two hours a day, at the cost of $270 a day. And we did it. My husband and I did it because we, we had worked really hard to earn our place in heaven, and we weren't willing to give it up. And again, in that desperate moment, You don't think logically, you don't think, maybe I'll Google this and see if it's a real thing, right? Like, I didn't read any of the reviews on this guy or his program. I didn't even Google, like, is it possible to become straight, right? Because I just had the blinders on. We were both very, very desperate. And that's how you can get two college-age adults to buy into a total pseudoscientific therapy. So, uh Like 57% of people who go through that therapy, I ended up suicidal and I was very privileged to get incredible help very quickly. 
And through the healing process, I was able to realize my kids can either have a gay mom or a dead mom. Mm. And it was up to me to choose. Mm. If I knew, I knew that because of the hole, the mental hole that I had been in, the only way to stay alive was to be 100% honest with myself and everyone around me. I couldn't pretend anymore because 37 years of pretending had put me into that hole. So the only way in my head to climb out of it was to be 100% authentic to myself. And therefore, that's how I came down to that. It's either going to be a dead mom for my kids or a gay mom. And I had already fought the battle. My kids deserved a a mom who was alive. And so I was able to make very small but huge decisions, little steps, right? Little baby steps. I filed for divorce. I got a rental for the first time I lived by myself since I was 19 years old. Well, I always had a college roommate. So really it was the first time I'd ever lived by myself. Um, You know, and then I decided I needed to leave the religion and I needed to figure out this whole sexuality thing. And what was amazing coming out of that healing process was to realize, I, I mean, Kristen, I really honestly thought that I was the only Mormon lesbian mom in the whole world. <laughs> I just didn't think they existed. And then to realize, oh my gosh, like not only are there others, but there are thousands and thousands of others and we're all struggling and we're all trying to heal at the same time. And so I started to share my story and that's led to giving the TEDx talk and that led to the public speaking. But then COVID happened and the need for connection just dramatically increased because you saw all of these people now trapped at home, many of them college students who had just come out while they were in college, right? And now they were trapped at home, oftentimes with parents or family members who were not affirming. But you also had all these spouses that like me had been just going along, trying to distract themselves as far as much as possible. But when you are trapped in your house, there's only so much distraction you can have. So there were spouses that were realizing, oh, myself or my spouse is really struggling with their sexuality. And, And unfortunately, the suicide rate started to skyrocket. I mean, it's always been four times higher for the LGBTQ population, but during COVID, it's just gotten ridiculous. And so the idea for the nonprofit started, um, but I had thought back to my ex-husband and how he had been a rising star in one of the public accounting firms, one of the big four. He was a partner before he was 40. Like he was on the fast track, right? And I always knew when he would come home from work and he had had like an HR training, cause he'd be like, I'd like to invite some feedback on my husband. Or he'd say, I'd like to practice my active listening skills. <laughs> and it was awesome. I loved it. I loved it because he was so much more open to that kind of new information at work than he was from his nagging wife at home, right? And so it it was such a benefit to our family when those trainings happened at work. And I thought, man, maybe that's how I can get to some of these parents and to some of these struggling college students 
that I, if I can go into their work and present it in such a way where the information is considered um, economically important to them, then their hearts and their minds will be open to it. And that is what we've seen. It's been absolutely incredible. After these workshops, these parents are going home and saying to their kids, hey, I learned about non-binary today. Are any of your friends non-binary? Mm -hmm. And they're able to have a conversation with their kids that they'd never had before, simply because they were given some more information that their minds were open to. All right, so that's like the most summarized version of the story wow. ever. <laughs> wow, and, and I'm thank you so much for, for sharing so openly, Elena, because I, I know the story and I, I'm so glad that you could give in like all of those details and really explain what that was like for the audience because it's not easy. And, and to recognize that at the time you didn't know that there was other people out there and there's other support and to feel so alone and to be in a place where that decision has to be made. And it's like, gosh, like I, I think as a mother and I hear you saying that, is it the dead mom or the gay mom? Like for you to have to ever even have to be in that situation to make that decision. And I think that's why you're so passionate about the work that you're doing. You're trying to educate people to help them understand, you know, what people are, are going through and also understanding it's not a decision that someone just says, oh, I've just decided I'm going to be gay and today I'll be gay tomorrow. I won't be gay. It doesn't work like that. And, um, and, you know, and I also want to acknowledge that this isn't something so Elena is located in the US. This is something that goes on globally. We've got um, we've got conversion therapy places that are in Canada. Um, I'm sure they're in Europe as well, because I do think what happens sometimes, especially we're going to talk a lot about inclusion, um, but sometimes with even anti-racism, people would say like, oh, well, that only happens in the US. No, 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 no. That happens in Canada too. And I want to talk about like this work and why it's so important. Um, well, it might feel like, oh, certain countries are more progressive. Let's be really honest. There's still a lot of work to be done. Totally agree. And I find that to be a fascinating sentiment, but also very relatable. You know, I was the mom who, when Prop 8 happened in California to try to shut down same-sex marriage, I was instructed by my religious leadership to go and support that, right? And I was that mom. In fact, and this is going to horrify you, I was the mom that when my boys were like 11, 12, I told them, if you masturbate, it'll turn you gay. Because that's seriously what I believed. I was that mom. And so that's kind of my secret sauce going into companies to help increase inclusion is I'm not judging you. Yes. Because I was you. Yes. Like I absolutely understand the entire framework of thought of one, that's either not a problem or two, that's a huge problem that needs to be shut down. Right. So I totally get that, but it is, every time it comes up, it's fascinating. I did a podcast interview with a woman in Ireland, Ireland, the UK, somewhere in there. And she made the same kind of comment, like, I'm so glad that's not a problem here, mm. which is such a dangerous statement to make when one has access to Google, <laughs> because during the interview, I was able to say, okay, well, 20 miles from where you are currently located, there's a conversion therapy camp. It's a three-day camp where they don't let you eat or drink. You pray the whole time and you can sign up right now. Would you like to yeah. like really there's three countries in the world that are a countrywide ban on conversion therapy. Two of them are really tiny and I can, I always forget them. I want to say like Malta or something. Mm. Germany is the only like larger economically strong company or country that has an entire countrywide ban. Um, 
some states in the U.S. have a ban, but it's only for minors. Mm. So like what happened to me is completely and totally legal. People often ask me, have you gone back and sued that guy? He took you for so much money and almost your life. And I have to say, no, it's completely legal. Mm. We have a hard time just getting conversion therapy on the ballot, let alone voting for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's such an important piece of what you do, Elena. And, and I think any of this kind of work is when we start to help people understand unconscious biases or um, thoughts that are showing up that they're not even recognizing that are there, that's conditioning and um, limiting beliefs that have been passed down generations, passed down culturally. It's about creating a safe space where people can learn and ask questions, right? Because people, as you're, as you're saying, when you're talking to families, like they, they they have questions. They don't even know what they don't know. And, and so showing up from that place of curiosity. And so this podcast is called inspirational leadership. And, and to me, an inspiring leader, it's not about the person who's just standing up there and being charismatic. It's about the leader who's going on their inward journey and, con- and constantly looking for ways that they can grow and improve. And I believe we all have unconscious biases and we can all continuously grow and become more inclusive. When you think about organizations and, and opportunities, because I love to start with opportunities and possibilities, what would you like to see more of in organizations when it comes to supporting the LGBTQ community? Um, I have a concept that I teach. It's called radically acknowledging reality. So in that sense, for example, I, I say that no sustained change can be created without radically acknowledging reality. And for example, part of that is I could not resolve my mental health issues of anxiety and depression until I radically acknowledged that I hated my intimate life with my husband. I had tried to skirt around it for 17 years and the anxiety and the depression just grew deeper. And I couldn't even recognize that they were there because I refused to acknowledge that what I was feeling, the fact that I was white knuckling through every day was actually anxiety, right? So I help companies try to see how they can radically acknowledge reality. So let me give an example of that. I'm a Gen Xer and Gen Xers are identifying LGBTQ at about 8% and millennials are identifying at about 10%. Gen Z, the generation born after 1995, they are identifying at 33%. Wow. Okay. So when I speak with managers and I say, okay, look at your populations. If you have a team of, we'll just call it a hundred and maybe 50 of them are Gen Xers and millennials and boomers. So they all identify between five and 10%. So if you don't have five to 10% of your employees in in those age groups out, chances are they don't feel safe being out. And that's a culture problem. Mm -hmm. And as we go into Gen Z, they don't stand for culture problems. (laughs) If we present too much of a culture problem, they walk away (laughs) and they call us boomer on the way out the door. (laughs) Right? Like our workplaces are really going to change in the next five to 10 years in a big way. Because if, if that Gen Z employee is not already LGBTQ, their sister is, or their brother is, or their mom is. And if you don't show them that you are the inclusive company they want you to be, they do not want to work with you. 
gone are the days, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, gone are the days where people stay, I don't know, even five years at one job. <laughs> like we leave and we go to a place where we feel the absolutely most comfortable. And Gen Z has proven to us that money isn't exactly their priority either. Mm-hmm. They could care less about getting their driver's license, let alone getting their car, right? Yeah. And so they're going to go and work with the company that just makes them feel really valued, really included. They love that. And so that's what you need to offer them, or you're not going to retain the key talent that you want to have. Absolutely. I think it's so important to take a step back and be asking those questions because absolutely there's, there's different things. And and I would even say some of those other groups, they would want to be maybe talking more about it. So I love like, cause different, I remember when they would say, Oh, here comes the millennials. They're all entitled. I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry. They're asking for purpose. They're in their work. They want to have meaning. They want to have work-life integration. Is, is that, is that a bad thing what they're asking for? Maybe from the company's perspective, because you're it's demanding change, but it's important change. And, and I, I always say like, I always related so much to the millennials and, and now the Gen Zs, because I want that too, as a, as a, as a generation X, right? So it's like beautiful what they're doing in the pathway. And, and I, I hope that it continues to happen with these next generations. And so when we start to think a little bit um, tactically, because I'm, I'm being conscious of there's some leaders that are, are listening onto this conversation, and they might want to be the advocates within their organization, they might want to be the HR leaders that are going to go talk to the CEO and say, hey, this is what we need to do more of this is how we need to start um, putting this in play. Uh, what, do you, what are some of those actions that they can start to take to make these changes in their organizations? Well, absolutely. The first one is inviting all of their employees, all of their leaders across the board to include their pronouns in their email signatures and in their screen avatar names. Now, I used to say require it because I was thinking about the people that would push back, right? However, in more and more discussions in the LGBTQ community, I've heard from so many people that have said, oh, my family and my close friends outside of work they know that I use they, them pronouns, but I am not bringing that to work. Mm-hmm. It, it is not worth the risk. I do not feel safe at work to put my pronouns out there. I don't feel safe enough to have those conversations. So please don't require me to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's a great first, I don't know, half step, because I don't even consider it like a full step, right? But it's a great half step to say, this is part of what we believe and invite them to give their pronouns in their signatures. Um, Plus, I just think it makes great sense. I mean, how many emails have we gotten? And it's the person is named Alex, and we have no idea. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And then when you think about some of these names that are going to be growing up, like Blue Ivy and Knox, (laughs) it would just be really helpful to have their pronouns. (laughs) So it's just logical. Um, The other part of it is definitely... There's, there's some major things and there's some small things. A major thing would be having gender neutral bathrooms at work mm-hmm. for the days that we actually go back into our workplace. Or if you're hosting an event, right? So many of us are remote now, but we might be hosting an event somewhere, putting out gender, gender neutral bathrooms. And all that means is picking a bathroom at the event center and saying, this is our gender neutral one, putting up a sign. Mm-hmm. It is so inclusive. It feels so good. 
And then another part would be, how can we advocate? I, I often teach parents that there is a journey from tolerating the LGBTQ community, valuing them, becoming an ally, and eventually becoming an advocate right? That's the next step in the allyship journey. Mm. And so helping companies realize where are we on that journey? And an indicator that you're on the tolerating end is, well, we don't care if you're gay. We just don't want to hear about it. Right. Okay. That's tolerating, right? And then it's, oh yeah, if you want to put your pronouns on your signature, great. That's fine. If you want to, it's not going to offend anyone else. That's fine. Okay, that's kind of valuing a little bit. And when you get to advocating, then you are at the point of, we have recognized that in our community, this is a politician who is blocking conversion therapy bans. We don't appreciate that. And we'll be putting our money and our energy towards not supporting that politician. Mm. That is an advocate. Mm. Mm. I really like what you did there. Um, can you also expand on the difference between allyship and advocacy? Because you really did. I, I love what you did with the advocacy because that's really even saying like, where is your money going, right? Because it's we can say things, but actions speak a lot louder than words. And you're making a strong statement economically. What's What would be happening when they're in the allyship category? Yeah, so an allyship might be, it's June and we're going to donate to an LGBTQ, maybe the pride parade, right? Or maybe we're even going to put in our truck and we're going to decorate it with rainbows. And that's awesome, right? That is allyship and that's great. However, an advocate would make sure that everyone in their office who wanted to attend the pride parade, that that was a paid day off for them. Uh. That's an advocate, right? So an ally is going to be there and be out there and be loud and proud. And that's great. An advocate is going to take it one step further. Yeah, no, that's a great example. One of the other things that's showing up for me, Elena, is you have the opportunity to talk to a lot of different people from the LGBTQ community. And so you get to hear firsthand accounts and stories and insights from them. What are some of the things that you might hear of perhaps more consistently or patterns around ways that they're not feeling as inclusive in the workplace that maybe the workplace doesn't realize that they're doing it, but if the organization could just do these small little things. So some of those examples of some of those micro behaviors Mm -hmm. might be showing up that you, you hear for people because they, they have a trusting place in you that they can talk through where they might not be feel safe enough to share Mm -hmm. those micro behaviors with the organization. Absolutely. So for example, you might have a team Zoom meeting, right? And in it, everyone's chatting. What'd you do last weekend? What'd you do last weekend? And maybe I said, oh, my girlfriend and I went bowling. It was great. I totally smashed her, right? And a guy on the call might say, next time you should invite me. And everyone, there's going to be an awkward pause and then everyone's going to move on, Right. The emotionally intelligent team leader in that moment would say, hey, Bob, I know it was just a joke. Unfortunately, it wasn't funny because it was based on the fact of her sexuality. You, if you want to make a joke, you need to joke about her horrible bowling skills. And then we move on. And that way there's no shame involved, right? Because shame never helps anyone learn. And that is probably the trickiest part for team leaders is to be able to acknowledge a situation and help resolve it without the factor of shame. 
Yeah, you and I have talked a little bit about this and, and you know that I'm super passionate about emotional intelligence. So let's talk a little bit, dive into this one a little bit more because um, from my experience, I do think the more emotionally intelligent the, the leader is, the more they can work through those situations. So the one you just gave, um, it takes courage and confidence for that leader in that moment, because it might be a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because now all of a sudden in that moment, you have to speak up. And um, so it's, it's learning how to work with, okay, I feel some discomfort, but in this moment, I recognize how important it is for me to acknowledge what just happened there. How, what are some of the other ways that you notice that emotional intelligence really plays in leaders being able to more effectively create an inclusive work environment? Well, I think emotionally intelligent people in general, but especially leaders are able to notice and observe without casting judgment, right? So both their own emotions and actions, as well as the emotions of action and actions of others, they're first of all, able to observe. And I think that's a massive skill in and of itself, right? But then to be able to observe without judgment, without saying that person is wrong and that person is right. It sets up a binary that's just not helpful. It's just not. Because anytime you're trying to tell someone that they're wrong and you're right, what happens, right? The, the heels dig in and no progress is made. <laughs> So the minute we're able to remove that binary, which means removing that judgment, we're able to have actually productive conversations and we make the workplace a safe place to fail, yeah. to screw up, yeah. right? And I, I constantly tell my organizational leaders, we're not trying to make the workplace perfect, mm. right? That's not what the rules are there for because perfection is impossible, mm. but we can make it safe. Mm -hmm. We can make it safe for all parties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so important what you're saying, because one of the things I really tried to lean on this last year is compassion. Um, I, I'd mix in a little of empathy there too, because um, there's been so much divisiveness in, in many different ways this last year, whether it's from people fighting about wearing masks, whether people saying there's no anti-racism, whether it's pandemic, everything, there's just been a lot of it this year. Yeah. And so I always, um, and I'll, I'll be interested in your insight around this is that I, I really feel the more leaders can take a step back and really lean on curiosity and like, what does it look like to take a step back I like to describe it as getting out of ego because it's the ego that's I'm right. You're wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. Someone has to be, there needs to be a winner here. Somebody mm -hmm. needs to be right. And someone needs to be wrong. That's not going to, that's not a way to go around winning your life at all. Actually. It's more yeah. about pausing and what does it look like to show up from a place of curiosity, actively listen and try to hear what this other person has to say. Um, but using your example as well for inside that meeting. And I think this is such a, a piece of um, a, those micro behaviors until you stand up in that way as a leader and lead by example around what is going to be accepted and what's not going to be accepted, you're not really teaching them, like you're not starting to create that shift. The more that those leaders in those moments speak up and say, in a kind way, this isn't like now shaming that person. Like, I can't believe you said that you're an idiot. Like that's also right. not effective either, right? No, it's, like it's not. <laughs> acknowledging, even saying to that person, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to, 
assuming positive intent. I, I, I don't think you meant to be coming across this way. And when you said that, but this is how you're impacting others by saying that. And, and we're not going to talk like that. So now they are more likely to be able to receive because mm-hmm. that leader came from compassion and empathy, the way they delivered that message to that person. So they're not feeling shamed. And then now they've also created a message for everyone on that team meeting that her just went with, which just went on there. They're modeling. Oh, okay. That's what it looks like to step up when a micro behavior is showing up in a way that's inclusive and compassionate and empathetic for that person who just engaged in that behavior. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Talk about creating safety, right? Talk about being able to try and fail and, and still be successful, right? Then it isn't failure anymore. Like for example, um, a, a team member might say, I feel safe, safe enough to ask you all to use they, them pronouns for me. Yeah. And then the team leader can say, awesome, we're going to respect that. And everyone, when you mess up, there is no need to profusely, profusely apologize. We're all going to. Yeah. And we, if you profusely apologize, you put that emotional labor back on her or they, them, right? Yeah. <laughs> so let's not put that on them. Let's keep that within ourselves. You just move on. You know, you stumble on the pronoun and you move on and eventually it becomes commonplace and it's no Mm -hmm. big deal. Um, And that is, again, right, it removes that element of shame, but it also, like you said, has that compassion because we're all going to screw up and it's not, it's not something you need to repent from. (laughs) We can move forward. Yes. Yes. It's having that grace and compassion for ourselves as well, because then what might happen is that it didn't go the way you thought. And then you're just saying, forget, I'm not going to do it anymore. No, we don't want that. It's like, just try. And there's going to be some times that you're going to mess up. And it really speaks to what you said earlier. We are all perfectly imperfect and no organization's ever going to get to the place that they're at this perfection, but it's, it's the progress along the journey. And the fact that they're continuously trying different things to get it right. And and I think something else that you spoke to um, that's so important, Elena, ultimately with all of this, um, people use different words to describe it, but I really talk about that psychological safety. If, If there's not that safety for people to be able to speak up, how often are those micro behaviors happening, but we don't even know that they're happening in our organization because people don't feel safe enough to even say what's going on. Yeah. And therein lies the advocates. If we don't have the advocates that are noticing in the meeting that the boss is still not using the right pronouns, right? Or that the boss or the coworker is still making those microaggressions, right? It takes that advocate to, you just really nail it on the head. We have blind spots. We have massive blind spots because of that unconscious bias. And we are dependent on those advocates to say, hold up, wait a minute, that was unsafe. I'm not okay with what just happened. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm going to just even speak for myself in that moment. It can take some courage. It can feel uncomfortable in that moment to speak up. And it's not the onus on that person who's part of LGBTQ to be the one that has to be speaking up. But like you said, that's more emotional labor on them. It's up for us to say, that's not cool what just happened there, but sometimes that might be somebody superior that might be, yeah. and, it, and it is uncomfortable, but that's, that's our role. And that's our opportunity in order, you, you know, we're already in, I, I, I'm going to use the word privilege. We're in a privileged place yeah. 
where we, we ha have an opportunity to use our voice to speak up so that that kind of behavior is not showing up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I often find there's a term in the lesbian world. So there's lots of different types of lesbians because our brains love to put people in boxes, right? <laughs> and so I would be considered like a femme lesbian, which means I'm very straight passing. No one, unless I'm dripping in rainbows, is going to look at me on the street and think that I'm a lesbian. And that is femme invisibility. And so the bummer part of it is that other lesbians can't find me. <laughs> <laughs> But the cool part of it is, or I guess cool, I can be straight passing, right? And so people, I have that privilege, yes, right? And, and that is a really interesting thing because then when I'm out in public with some of my friends or partners that are obviously lesbian and then they're treated a certain way, I'm able to be their advocate. And so I often teach parents about that concept, like what if, what if? we were all a little bit gay, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and you're straight passing. Well, now it's up to you to be the advocate for your child, right? You're going to watch and you're going to see the microaggressions happen towards your child. And who is going to be there to create that, to advocate for them, to create that safe space for them? Yeah. And it just points to like how important is the work that you do with organizations and, and families and training them and helping them to help to educate them on what they don't like, even what you just shared with me right now, that's new, that's new information, new knowledge for me, right? It's, I understood that on a different level that of course people are experiencing it in different ways, but I hadn't really, I didn't know to the point that there are different names like that. Right. And it yeah. makes sense. Right. So yeah. it's the more, and so what, what would you like to see more of organizations in terms of their ways to become more? more educated and trained around that? Is it ongoing training that's happening on a monthly basis? Is it um, they're having their, like, it's part of their strategic direction and who they are as a company? Um, what, what would you, and I know you're going into organizations and doing this, um, how do you get them to that? You know, this is where they are and you can continue to move them over to the other side and get stronger and stronger in that. What do you think works best for organizations? Wow. So that's like a multi-pronged attack. And one of them is the fact is SCOTUS ruled last June that in, at least in the United States, harassment and discrimination based on sexual orientation and or gender identity is illegal. And then like his third day in office, Biden like made that real clear that that was going to stick around. Right. So first there's that. And I, and I give them quite a few examples of where their blind spots are and where they might be, I don't know, inviting a lawsuit. Right. <laughs> so, and one of the primary parts of that is why don't you review some workforce policies and make sure that you're legal yeah. and, and invite the feedback of both up and downward, right? Getting the feedback of, okay, well, this is our legal requirement and what are we as a company going to do about it? How are we going to surpass? How are we not going to do the bare minimum, right? Because in the next five years, you're going to see LGBTQ people, that'll be one of the first research things they do is to find out if your company is in compliance with federal law, Yeah. right? They're also, by the way, going to check Glassdoor and they're going to talk with their local pride community. And we all talk to each other. We all know the bad companies in town to work for. So it's real clear. <laughs> 
so there's that. There's also, um, like you said, an education of verbiage and terms. And I really have found over and over and over again that the more people are empowered with knowledge, the more inclusive they become. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's just as simple cut and dry as that. Yeah. However, I've also learned when I work with companies if they have not had the conversation around gender and race, mm. they are not ready for the conversation around LGBTQ. Yeah. And it's like fighting, it's an uphill battle and I don't have the energy for it. <laughs> so, yeah. so if you haven't done that work already, that's where you start. Yes. Yeah. Cause it's already showing there at, there's a readiness, right? It's like, I think about it when I'm, I'm coaching people too, that you have to be ready to do the work because the work's going to be uncomfortable. And so mm-hmm. if you haven't started to have those really important, uh, uncomfortable conversations, they're not ready to do that work yet either. Mm-mm. And what's incredible is that we can find situations, man, I'm thinking of our last one. We did this workshop with a company and there was this one guy in the room that would just he did not want to talk. He did not want to interact. He was there with his arms folded and was like, I'm here because I have to be. By the third module, we do it in four modules. And by the third one, he finally spoke up and said, my sister came out to me in college and I handled it really badly. And she Mm -hmm. hasn't spoken to me since. And I don't know how to repair that relationship. And then to realize, oh my gosh, the previous two modules, three hours worth of work, that's what he was all pissed off about. Like that was the angst, right? I thought it was me. I thought it was the topic, right? But no, it was that he had this traumatic experience and his children had grown up not knowing their aunt, right? And to be able to role play with him and help him practice that conversation, It not only, of course, benefited everyone in the room, because I'm sure there were other experiences that related to that, but we changed a life that day. We changed a family that day. And he will always remember those moments that were sponsored by that company for that training. Like, that's something to be really proud of. Oh, my God. Like, I could cry and I have goosebumps all over my body right now, but those are like, then you're connecting, um, you're connecting hearts and minds right now. It's like, it's, and it's such a greater reminder that we can all do that where we even make assumptions, right? This is what's going on. He doesn't want to be here. He doesn't take this stuff seriously. Then ultimately, as you asked some questions and got down to the root of what was going on, oh my gosh, it was actually because he was having an incredibly emotional experience. And then look what ended up happening and, and, and organizations that are listening right now, HR leaders that are listening right now, like you can't even predict where this might go. And when you start to do this training, the opportunities, because again, we're whole people. And so we're not just one person at home and then one person at work, we bring that whole person with us. And when people are in this training and going through this kind of transformation and learning, it changes lives, many lives. It starts to have a ripple effect. Absolutely. I think just one more story that kind of brings that home. Uh, We did a workshop with just the C-suite at a company, right? Just the top level people. And it was very powerful. And one of the VPs emailed me a week or two later and relayed this experience. Um, He had an admin assistant, uh, this woman, and she was an older woman and he knew she had kids And he noticed in her cup holder or a pencil holder, right? There was a little pride flag. 
sorry, excuse me. It wasn't the typical rainbow flag that you think of. It was the trans flag. And he didn't know what, how it, what it was, what it represented. And so he asked and she told him, uh, my daughter is trans. And he knew from our conversation that trans people are at extremely high suicide rates and self-harm rates. And so he looked her in the eye and simply said, how is your child? I know that can be hard and there's a risk. And she, you know, that moment, that contact, that connection will forever be there. And now she knows when she comes to work, if something has happened with her daughter, if she needs a day off, whatever it is that she needs, that boss is there now and supportive and aware. He's not a different guy simply because he did our training, right? He's the same guy. It's just, he's now more aware. He now knows that if I have an employee that I see every single day who has a trans daughter, there are, we need to be very aware of their mental health. And I need to be very supportive of her in getting that daughter mental health. Oh, Elena, that just, what, that, what you just shared in that story is when I say humanizing work, yeah. that's it right there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So as we end today's podcast, I mean, thank you so much. Everything that you've shared has just hearts on the heart level. And I know anyone's listening, they're hearing this on the heart level. What final thoughts would you like to leave with our audience? Hmm. The time for assuming is over. Um, I often ask my parents, when did you come out as straight to your parents? And of course the eyes go wide. Well, I never did that. Everyone knew I was straight from the moment I was born. That time is over. Please don't assume your kids are straight. I have to say this um, because of the times that we're in. Every single kid that I know of that has come out as non-binary during COVID is now self-harming and or suicidal. Non-binary is the largest uh, gender identity right now in Gen Z. Um, these kids don't even want to attach to a gender. Mm -hmm. They don't want anything to do with the binary. And we keep trying to force it on them <laughs> and they are responding with harm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the biggest uh, crises we have going on in America right now is that we're not being we have incredible parents that are responding with, oh, you're non-binary. Okay. I love you no matter what. Mm. And then that's the end of the conversation. Mm. And it can't be the end of the conversation. It can't be. If your child or your coworker or your staff comes out as non-binary, please, please advocate for them. Yeah. We need them. And they're not going to stay here if we don't advocate for them such an important discussion. And in order for people to learn more about that, I know that you've got great resources. So where can people learn more about you, Elena? Yeah. So we're at um, www.prideandjoyfoundation.com and we're on all the socials, including Clubhouse, which is super fun. <laughs> and yeah. And we do one or two events a month with incredible speakers. We have coming up um, the premiere lesbian matchmaker in the United States. She'll be doing a, an event prior to Valentine's Day, which will be amazing. And then we also have Harris Hill out of the UK, 
they are a non-binary person who's just kind of the expert and is really helping parents in becoming advocates for their non-binary kids. So yeah, great events, great programs. We're now doing the inclusion corporate program virtually, and it's been just as successful, which is super fun because now it's accessible to everyone. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. This will all be in the show notes. So everyone can get in touch with Elena and I want to thank everybody who's listening today. I, you know, a lot going on in the world right now and people who are hearing this might be experiencing and having challenges too, that want to let you know that we're sending tons of love. Thanks so much for being here today, Elena. Thank you. I really appreciate you developing this platform and then being willing to pass the mic. I really appreciate that. And for everyone listening, you want to learn more, go onto the website. You'll hear lots of other conversations around inclusive leadership. And you can learn more about the work that I do as well. Emotional intelligence is a big piece of that. So sometimes it's coming in and helping leaders to really work that emotional intelligence muscle. And then also doing the one-on-one coaching. It's a journey and it's two steps forward and one step back. And (laughs) to have somebody who's championing you and offering support where you can fall and fail and know that you're not going to be judged can be really big for leaders as they're going on this journey as well. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone. Bye.